0: Welcome to the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Now, here's your host, Editor Christian Berg.
1: All right. Welcome back to the Bow Hunting Podcast. We are all bow hunting all the time. And today we have an absolutely fascinating episode. You know, when we think about the best deer hunters around the country, it's tempting, you know, to think about. Big personalities, the folks you see on television, maybe the folks you see in the pages of Peterson's Bow Hunting. But honestly, most of the really, really great deer hunters, and there are a lot of them out there, are guys that you're never going to know. And I want to thank my buddy John Silks, Peterson's Bow Hunting gear editor. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. I want to thank you for tipping me off to this week's episode because our other guest, is a fellow Pennsylvania bowhunter, Steve Shirk. Steve, thanks for being with us today.
2: Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: And Steve is here because John told me, hey, listen, Christian, we have got to get Steve Shirk back on the podcast because you joined us once before, Steve, and we talked about some other trail camera stuff, but you have been doing a long term trail camera study using. 100, 150, even as many as 170 trail cameras scattered throughout, you know, a wide area of your hunting territory in Pennsylvania. And you run these things for several months throughout the archery season every year. And you're cataloging all the data that you're getting in terms of the deer movement. With other environmental conditions. And you have actually come up with some amazing conclusions and learned some things that we can all benefit from to be better hunters. And it's absolutely fascinating. So, you know, with that as an introduction, and I got to actually do one more thing, guys. I got to remind you who brings us the podcast, guys. And trail cameras is a great topic because if you need trail cameras, you know where you want to go, John? Take one guess, John.
0: <laughs> you tell me,
1: Lancaster Arch Lancaster Archery Supply—they got them all. So for all your bow hunting needs, visit LancasterArchery.com. They've I got like the
0: gear. In position to name a particular trail camera. I was like, I'm not doing oh, that. Oh
1: <laughs> no! I was thinking you're going to talk about our buddies down there in Lancaster. No, no, they've got the gear. They've got the knowledge and they've got the passion. So. They've got the passion for archery and all the good archery stuff. Steve, you've got the passion for running those trail cameras out in the field. So why don't you just start out by telling us, how did this whole project get started? And I can't imagine it started with 170 cameras.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, it didn't. Um, you know, it was sort of by accident, but, uh, you know, just combing through, like, you know, trail cam photos and, you know, looking through SD cards mainly after the season, I would notice like you know, just certain days, you know, basically probably at the time, you know, say uh seven, eight years ago, I was probably only running anywhere from 30 to 50 cameras. And but I just noticed on certain days, like, holy cow, why were most of my trail cameras, you know, so active these days and other days, you know, they weren't. And you know, I started trying to find more sense in it. And uh you know, so then, you know, I started to pay a little bit more attention to, you know, certain factors like moon and temperature and, you know, even sometimes pre- precipitation and you know, several others. But after I kind of dabbled into it a little bit, I really wanted to take the the research seriously because I really started to see that, you know, there was going to be really something to take from it. And uh, so I did want to start with 100 trail cameras um and that was like i said roughly about 6 years ago um and that year uh you know i kept track of moon phase uh, barometric pressure wind shifts wind changes you know temperature obviously um and i honestly thought that either moon or uh barometric pressure was going to be kind of like the the ultimate uh clue as far as uh you know when you're going to see these spikes in movement but after the first year I did it, uh, I was completely wrong. Uh, temperature just crushed everything. Um, and that really started to get me thinking. And, uh, you know, as I went on doing it for the next couple of years, you know, temperature kept winning the game, kept showing the most uh, productivity, you know, in certain days, certain weather events. So, you know, in the past few years, I really have only focused on temperature. Those um, teams- Are you
0: looking at uh, all deer or are you looking at
2: mature bucks? Yeah, right. That's, yeah, that's a good, good that you brought that up. So it's only bucks. Um, just, I dabbled into it. Like I said, seven, eight years ago, I tried keeping track of all deer and I did find that it just seemed like does were less affected, you know, by weather events than, than bucks like bucks seem to be more, uh, just more picky about when they really want to move and especially mature deer. But the problem with trying to do mature deer at least early on, I thought was, it's not always easy to to judge on a trail cam photo if that's a mature deer or not. So uh, I mainly have just done bucks, whether it doesn't even have to be a legal buck, anything with antlers, you know, the past uh, the past few years. But last season I did do mature bucks And I actually thought it went pretty well, better than what I thought. There was a lot of deer, like I never guessed, like if I wasn't for sure um, that it was at least what I judge as a mature buck as a four and a half year old or older, I didn't count it. Um, But we can talk about that a little bit later on too. But just uh, make sure I explain this thoroughly. Um, So my camera spread is all on public land. It's roughly a thirty mile stretch, maybe by like fifteen miles wide in northern Pennsylvania. Um, so I feel like I have a good enough broadcast of of trail cameras or a good enough spread, like I think it makes the study uh, you know, I think it makes it more valuable and it's not all in just one small area. You know, I think I get better results that way too. So, um, that's kind of why I, you know, spread it out like that, mainly just to make sure, you know, that I was given, given the data a fair chance to, to be accurate. Right. And then also um, the dates I do the study are roughly October 1st to December 10th, which those are pretty much the entire period of archery season in Pennsylvania, as well as gun season.
1: So you have these things spread out across many, many thousands of acres. Talk to me just a little bit about how how do you pick your, your camera location?
2: Um, I try to be very diverse in it. You know, I'm not really focusing on one thing, except what I have been doing a lot, whether it's a travel corridor or, you know, next to a food source, I usually put a mock scrape or sometimes i get lucky and there's a scrape in that area the reason why a lot of them are on scrapes is it's you know it's the one thing you can count on in the woods that you can get a buck to stop at you know a lot of a lot of the other situations and setups like you know you just don't get a good angle or you don't get a buck to stick around long enough to uh you know to really get to know whether it's a sometimes a big buck uh mature buck or how many points it has so I I use those scrapes also to uh, just to really get a good idea what the deer is and then secondly too um, a scrape in my opinion gives a reason for a a deer to come back to a certain location like a lot of these bucks come back multiple times throughout the year sometimes even multiple times in a week Uh, so it's a good way to to get a deer to want to come to. Right in front of that camera, you know, more often, especially. But overall, like I said, i I've got cameras in bottoms and high elevations. Uh, I try to I try to spread them out in a lot of different areas because once again, I want to get as much data. Uh, I want to give the the study a fair chance to to be extremely accurate and useful. So you know, I'm trying to put them in a lot of various locations.
1: Well, and that's you know that's what I wanted to hear because. Again, you know, you're talking about drawing some conclusions, and it's it's a broad. You know, you're casting a pretty wide net here, uh, covering variety of habitats. Probably some some open areas, some field edges. So, like you said, some ridge tops, some bottoms, probably some areas along you know creeks or rivers or crossings and things like that. So, so you've really got it covered well, and yeah. and again, you're looking at deer, you know. Across a wide enough area where, you know, when you talk about the herd that you're monitoring, it's not just one localized deer population. It's there are deer within your study area that those home ranges, I'm sure, don't even come close to intersecting.
2: Yeah, exactly. And uh, also in my guiding business, uh, it kind of bodes well too, because the more cameras I have out, and especially in a wider area, you know, the more. The more big deer we're going to locate, the more I'm able to spread out hunters. Like you know, it works in a lot of different, you know, a lot of good beneficial ways. Uh, not just for the study, uh, but I, I feel that you know, I feel it's pretty important if you're going to run a lot of cameras to uh, to give them a good spread. Whether it's not just in you know multiple different types of habitats and you know different elevations, but you know cover as much ground as you can too. I think that makes it a big difference.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so, so you know, I know before we started recording, you know, we talked about you've probably cataloged well over a million, maybe multiple millions of trail camera images over the six years or so that you've been doing this. So let's just dive right in. I mean, this is what people are dying to know, right? What are the conclusions that you've drawn? And I guess you want to start out We're talking about that temperature because you said you've, you know, you've identified that as the number one factor. So what are some of the parameters that you've discovered? uh, And then we can take it from there.
2: Yeah. um, I mean, there's things that happen every year or, you know, things that you can say like, you know, for one, a lot of people love the early part of archery season in Pennsylvania. Some people say that's the best period, but actually, in the years I've been doing it, it's always been the worst period for movement. Um our best stretches like, <laughs> you know,
1: You're our- not going you're telling me that I have to let actual hard and fast, indisputable <laughs> data like you know, mess up my fanciful notions of archery season?
2: <laughs> I can only tell you what I've found, but uh it definitely doesn't since I've done the study, like it definitely plays a role in the when you want to hunt, and uh, you know, whether it's time of year and or like if it's real warm out, I'm not as excited anymore. But what I kind of wanted to bring up was like the early part of October is always slow. Now, even if you get good temperatures, yes, you will see spikes in movement. Uh, the temperature is a factor at almost any time of year except uh, it does seem to have an opposite effect in the winter, which you know, I don't want to go too all over the place right yet. But my point is, like, what we do see somewhat similar every year is our best streaks of movement. And if you were to maybe boil it down within a few weeks, um, would either be the last week of October or first two weeks of November. There's That's always when we have our greatest period of movement. But I will say in the past three years, it's been a different week. So some people will tell you that it doesn't matter, you know, weather or hunting pressure or anything else, but some people believe like, say roughly like November, you know, second to the ninth or something is always gonna be the best. And we have not seen that. It's been, there's always been big differences every year. Um, uh, In 2020, the best stretch of movement was the last week of October and 2021. The best stretch was first week in November and 2022 was second week of November. And even actually going more into the third week, it was really late last year for the best movement. But I will say um, those were always the coldest weeks, um, which once again, they talked right. talk about temperature. So it also, you know, yeah, it is, the heat of the rut which i would agree like somewhere within those few weeks you know you're you're going to be in that peak rut situation but it's the temperature still has a huge effect on when these bucks are really starting to range out you it doesn't matter if you, drop, you have a temperature drop
0: during one of those weeks you better yes, be in. absolutely that's and, why uh you, you know and, one of andy's questions too he said uh he wanted me to ask you, if, uh, you know, weather aside, you know, you had to pick a five-day stretch to to hunt. You know, when would it be? But it sounds to me like, you know, it would be just anytime you had time during those three weeks.
1: Yeah,
2: well, yes and no. Like if I couldn't if I couldn't use weather, um, I still probably would go with the latter part of October, like maybe the twenty fifth to thirty first, because the one thing about that you know those days every year somewhere within maybe you break it down into a three-day period within that week we always have a good spike in movement um and I think then like that is a time period when there's not many does available but yet bucks are really starting to get on their feet and look um because when you start having more does coming to heat You know, a lot of your bucks get locked down into those areas. People think lockdown, once again, is always a certain week. But um, really, there's periods throughout November in different areas when different does are coming into heat. And like I said, you want, as a hunter, at least for me, I want the more bucks on their feet looking for that hot doe, the better. But once they find that hot doe, that can shut an area right down.
0: Yeah, because they're all somewhere. And if you're not in, if you're not there, then you think that the rut's over, it's terrible, yeah. and everything. But just a ridge away,
2: yes, it's breaking loose. Exactly. exactly. You want to be where it's just very widespread. You know, bucks moving like crazy, and you'll find that more in late October than anything else.
1: Yeah, and the other thing that we're talking about here is. You know, when you mentioned earlier, Steve, that a lot of people will say, well, it's always going to be, say, between like the 2nd and the ninth of November. I think what we're talking about there, and I don't argue with this, it's based on mean conception date. And I agree with the biologists that say, that's not really going to vary very much from year to year, that mean conception date. And of course, they can do their studies and get data by measuring fetuses and things like that after the fact and figuring out when the vast majority of the does are bred. But again, what we're talking about is when can you capitalize as a hunter? Because the rut is going to happen, regardless of whether it's 100 degrees or zero degrees or anywhere in between. That's not going to change. And I don't think we're arguing with that. What we're talking about is, you know, unfortunately, if it's 100 degrees, almost all that red activity is going to happen at night and it's of no use to you as a hunter. Um, yeah. And so, what you want to do is within that period of late October to mid November, when, you know, these things are going to be happening, when are they most likely to be happening during legal shooting hours when you can actually use it to your advantage?
2: Exactly. Yeah. I I always tell, you know, even like my clients, I say, you know, just because it's even 70 degrees, it doesn't mean that the rut isn't going on. And even there's always some movement and even outside of the rut, like deer don't just lay in their beds for eight to 12 hours a day. They get up some, but, you know, like John brought up, it's unless it's a prime weather day, a lot of that movement is very centralized. And it's so much harder to to get in that window or to find that, um, you know, it's just, just makes it much harder. So uh, it's just, uh, you know, one of those things I've found that the, the further deer moving and bucks, especially the greater your odds go up.
1: So let's get into some details. Okay. Cause you talked about the coldest week during that you know, last week of October, first week of November, the last three years has been the best week. But I mean, we got to get a lot more specific than that. What's cold? Now, again, yeah. we're talking we're in Pennsylvania. So if you live in, you know, Virginia, it's probably not going to be as cold. If you live in Maine, it's going to be colder. So I think there's some relativity to what we're going to talk about here that people have to sort of apply to their particular areas.
0: Yeah. Is it is it temperature or is it temperature change?
2: Temperature, actually, i found is more important than temperature change. Now, I will say, though, uh, a drastic temperature change, like, you know, when I shot my PA buck last year on November 12th, it was 60 degrees at midnight. And then later in that day, it was in the 30s. Like, there was just a crazy temperature drop. And November 12th was a top five day for this study last year as far as buck movement. So, I mean, that certainly was a huge factor and and it it definitely um, is really important and something to pay attention to. But, you know, in the years I've been doing this, um, what I'm finding is like, you need it under 40 degrees for a high and you want lows like 32 or colder. Um, I can't say, I've seen very few days, even here in northern Pennsylvania, where I had lows like in the teens. So I don't know if there's anything such as too cold either, probably not, you know, during the rut. But anytime I'm seeing, like I said, temps in the 30s and the lows in the freezing or below freezing mark, always a tremendous spike in movement. And if those temperatures stay the same, even for 10 days straight, like some people will say that, stagnant weather stagnant temperatures start to have an effect on deer movement i've seen completely opposite of that whenever you have prime temps i would say from october 15th to november 15th you will see very very good movement it could stay like that for two weeks and i think the movement would still stay pretty good
1: all right steve i want to repeat what you said because people don't want to miss that if it's yep. 40 degrees or below as a high and yep. the low temperature is freezing or below those are the days that you want to key on and you want to hunt as much as you can on any of those days even if you get four or five or six in a row that fifth yep. or sixth day could be just as good as the first day
2: absolutely uh, in in the data that i have um if that cold weather stays consistent 98% of the time, you know, you'll look at the charts and they're still booming. So uh, I don't see anything as far as like stagnant weather. You need you need like two to three days and then a weather change. You know, I don't I don't see that at all. If you have prime temps given the right time of year, the movement will stay very good.
1: Okay, now let's get specific. Again, we talked some specifics on temperatures. Let's get specific on movement. And, okay, let's start with this. On a percentage basis or a multiples basis, how much more movement, and again, we're talking buck movement here, how much more buck movement are you documenting, on average, on one of these cold days that we just described, versus yep. another day that doesn't meet those temperature criteria.
2: Yeah, no, it, it's amazing. Like, I can even say, like, uh, for instance, well, let me, let me also put this, this is an interesting factor too. and then I'll jump on to your question. But so in 2021, our best day for this study, most pictures was November 6th. In 2022, the worst day we had was November 6th. So that's that's very interesting too. However, um, November 6th in 2022 was like highs in the 70s, lows in the 60s. So it was completely dead. Um, and also keeping track of mature buck photos out of 170 plus cameras in, I mean, you would think somewhere on any camera you would have got a mature deer. We had zero mature buck photos on November 6th last year. We did get maybe four or five, I I don't I wish I had that exact number with me, but a handful of pictures on November 6th of just small bucks. But then uh, you throw in like, you know, we got to November 12th when the temperature started to change and, you know, we're getting like 20 to 30 photos on those days. So you're talking like less than five photos uh, or sequences of movement. Versus, you know, so that's, it's not, it's, it's tripling or quadrupling at least. Well, it's actually,
1: it's actually days. seven, it's actually six, six times. I mean, if you go from five to 30, that's six yep. times the amount of mature buck activity on a cold day as you're getting on a sort of a black, unseasonably warm day.
2: Absolutely. We only had, I I believe, three mature buck photos uh, through the entire study last year on any day that it was the like either highs in the 40s or 50s or 60s, whatever, like and, unless it was what I call a 30-30 day um, when you have temps once again in the 30s and lows in 32 or below, I mean, we only had a handful of mature deer pictures on those days out of 170 some cameras.
1: John, did you hear what he just said? He should trademark that. 30-30. The 30-30 buck hunting method. Steve Sharks 30-30 club. That's, That's what i honestly The only time I go in
2: the woods. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it's for, for hunters, it's a good way to uh, to remember that, like a 30-30 day, because the old 30-30 used to be the, the most popular deer hunting rifle. Oh, yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I... I'll tell you what Steve it's it's fascinating uh, but it's also a little I mean it's encouraging and 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 depressing all at the same time because a lot of guys just like to hunt and maybe the takeaway here is like hey if you just love to sit in the woods that's fine um like it is nice to sit in the woods but if it's not a 30 30 day and you've got an easy real comfortable ladder stand that's only like 100 yards from the truck just go sit in that stand every time it's not a 30-30 day because all you're really doing is sitting in the woods. So you want to go sit in the woods, go sit in the woods. But when you get a 30-30 day, you're actually going to hunt and kill. And that's when you do your hunting and you do your sitting on the non-30-30 days. That's No, that's
2: absolutely a great point. Um, And I, I talk about that a lot too. Like, you know, I always believe in this and the study kind of backs it up that, you know, your best spots on the best days and uh you know why why go in there and put a whole bunch of human scent in the spot when you know it's very unlikely that you know deer's going to come in there you know while you're there you know, during daytime hours so chances are you know buck's going to come in there at night and know that someone's been in here during the daytime versus you know like you said you you could have just just some other stands just to you know, because for a lot of us, it's not always about the kill, obviously, and just being out there. And you don't, you know, you don't want to miss out on a, a free opportunity of hunting. If you know, if you can get out there, get out there. But you know, the overall point is, hunt your best stands when when the weather's prime. I totally agree with that.
1: Now let's go back to something else that you talked about a little while ago, and I'm really curious on this. You mm-hmm. talked about scrapes. Obviously, you can use you know, either by by putting a dripper on a real scrape or, or creating a mock scrape, you can use that, honestly, year round. Deer, deer will be curious about that. You can get them there. But when it comes to that pre-rut period, when bucks will tend to make quite a few scrapes in and around their core area, their travel corridors as they're kind of still somewhat predictable before the the full rut kicks in and, and it gets a little more chaotic. What have you identified through your study in terms of scrape activity or frequency of visits to scrapes? Is there a definable period where that peaks? And if so, is that something that you've incorporated into your own hunting strategy or what you do with your clients?
2: Yes, um, I have found, uh, that's something pretty consistent every year. Uh, I've seen more consistency from individual bucks returning to scrapes, probably from October 15th to Halloween. After that, they're much more unpredictable. Um, Now I will say sometimes when, you know, I also believe that a buck can sense when a doe is getting ready to come into heat. Like, you know, if it's a few days away, that. I believe they can start to sense it. And what I will see is like if you have a, a hot dough or, or a dough that's almost coming into heat, and maybe it's there's a scrape like on the edge of, of, of a dough bedding area, you will see a consistency as far as a buck keep coming back to that scrape and communicating with her. And that could be, you know, any time in the rut, but usually like, you know, for two weeks in November. But if it's, at that time of year, it's more about finding the right scrape that's being hit versus that later October period, bucks are really going around like checking a lot of scrapes and working a lot of scrapes. Um, I also think it's more about them marking their territory and putting their name in spots and versus, uh, you know, once you, once you get into that November period, I think it's more about communicating with other does um, I think that has a lot to do with uh, especially trying to find a, a dough that's, um, yeah. you know, getting ready to be bred. On that subject, Steve, I, you
0: know, I, I've learned a little bit, but from looking at your uh, trail camera pictures um, and something that we do, you know, you have scrapes take on a variety of, you know, sizes and, you know, seems like effort <laughs> that's put into them from the bucks. It seems like, you know, the... The scrapes that we're finding our activity on and what looks like the scrapes that I see on some of your cameras are not these little football size, you know, <laughs> you know, two, you know, two-stroke scrapes. They are scrape scrapes that are sizable yeah. and visited not just by bucks, but by by a variety of deer.
2: As, yeah, absolutely correct. Um, I'm not just setting, you know, cameras on any scrape I find, you know, I've I've got enough experience where you know I feel like I know what to look for and scrape size is one of them um I don't put a lot of you know a lot of cameras and places where uh, I feel there's a lot of night activity I mean I, I do have a few cameras in those spots because sometimes you can at least get inventory from those but you know, I'm looking for scrapes around thick cover or more remote areas uh where I can get, you know, better daytime movement. And the other thing too, about scrapes is so I have seen like, this is specifically, you know, from hunting over scrapes and watching bucks work. I'm like, I've seen one buck, you know, work a scrape for 15 minutes, pot it out several times. And by the time he leaves, it's about four to five feet long and almost that wide. So not always scrape size is gonna be the true indicator, but What you do wanna look for, and I like to do this uh like in the postseason period, if you have a mild winter, even the winter months, but early spring mostly, is you wanna find scrapes where there's like a lot of roots starting to be exposed, because that's a sign of more and more deer activity, more dirt being dug up. You know, if it's just bare ground, you're seeing, even though if it's a big area. It hasn't really been worked, you know, for long or for many periods of time. But when you start to see multiple roots being dug up, or sometimes I've seen them so bad that they start to develop like an oval shape because they're just pot out. Because nine out of ten times uh, in the fall, a mature buck is going to not just put his scent on the licking branch, but he's going to scrape the dirt and then urinate in it. So that's a true sign of of a very active scrape. Is you know when you start to see the roots being dug up and it you know, starts to have that impression in the ground
0: that uh, uh, leads me to another question so um uh, when you're out there and you find a scrape like that just put a camera on it and walk away or do you do you hang a branch do you what do you do a vine a branch
2: or do you just set the camera and leave um no, that's that's a great question. Most of the time I will hang a beech limb if there's beech in the area. Uh, I like to use beech limbs because they're one of the most durable uh, branches you can use for a licking branch. you know they can take a beating and uh, they hold their leaves after they've been cut like a beech limb will sometimes hold its leaves for a year after it's been cut you know from the tree that it was on and those leaves, are an added attraction, they hold scent better, and I've just found that licking branches with leaves are more preferable to deer. Some people say you know a lot of people really like grapevines, and I've up my way, I haven't had as much luck with grapevines as I have beech lens, but we also don't have hardly any scrapes or or much grapevine in general, so I like to keep it as natural as possible. Um, I'm not also I'm also yeah. not. I'm rarely ever putting scent on them. I don't believe there's a lot out there that can mimic the true scent that a deer has. And also when I go to hunt uh, a scrape, like I don't like to walk up to that scrape and risk my own human scent being spread around that area just to put, you know, deer scent there. Now, some people will say they have a lot of luck doing it, but I've had better luck just, you know, uh, putting... Hanging a good a good licking branch, even if it's a natural scrape, because what if you don't have a good licking branch, like the deer don't know that, but if it's not something that's going to hold up and that licking branch falls down and there's nothing within reach, most of the time that scrape's going to really re- shut down or the, the activity will really decrease. So, you know, you want to make sure that scrape's going to hold up for a good long period of time. Yeah yeah here and here where I
0: hunt in central Pennsylvania, you know we got a combination of mountains and valleys and fields and things, and we have a ton of grapevine. and I think I sent you a picture, uh, probably both of you at one point where I've got I think four bucks in one picture around a scrape. Uh, one, one of them was licking the vine, one of them was pawing the ground, two other ones were just standing around it. you know so you know I, I like to h- hang vines here, but I've been thinking about doing like a little uh, study of my own and almost gotcha. putting like a vine in one part of the scrape and a beach in the other side part of the scrape and see okay.
1: what
2: happens. You maybe have done that. I don't know, but I absolutely did that
1: only on one or
2: no two spots last year and uh, the beach limb crushed the vine. Now, yeah. like I said, I can't say that that's going to be the case everywhere else, but when a buck has never seen Of probably a grapevine or, uh, or especially a scrape made under a grapevine, but there's, there's beach everywhere here, usually like he's going to be more, you know, interested in, okay, I've seen this before. I know this is a real scrape versus, you know, what is that thing hanging there? And even with rope scrapes, like I don't do a lot of rope scrapes anymore because, you know, they're not as natural, but if I do a rope scrape, I'm putting that out months in advance because you want to give the deer in that area as much time as possible to get used to that. And you know, you don't want to from my experience also, you don't want to make a great or a rope scrape right now because we're getting right near hunting season. You want to hopefully establish the pattern where deer are frequenting right at that scrape and wanting to come in and you know visit right. it frequently. Yeah, One of the things
0: I can tell you is you know, that picture of all those bucks around that uh, that vine. I got a lot of questions people asking me what pre-orbital scent did you use on that and they can almost think they almost i think they almost think i'm lying when i tell them i didn't use anything
2: <laughs> exactly
0: and i remember
2: you you asking me that question too i was like i'm telling you it will work with no scent dear." Yeah. uh you know that they have a lot of communication through scrapes and their eyes are always on the lookout for those those branches, you know, especially a vertical branch, which most of your really good scrapes are gonna have a broken branch where it hangs vertically. So that's like a signal to to deer like, oh, okay, we got a scrape going over here. So these scrapes are more being found with their eyes than their nose. And then once deer do start frequenting them and putting their own scent on them, they're gonna pick up that scent with their nose anyways.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I was. It was so hard for me not to put something on that branch, or that vine. I'm like, I oh, don't know. Steve said, don't do it.
2: So, <laughs> well, that's... I mean, I'm not going to say that scent doesn't work at all, but I, I would at least say most of the products I've used haven't been that necessary. You know, either a waste of money or a waste of time. You know, and I've also seen negative effects at times too. Oh yeah, I've seen that
1: yeah I t- uh, I think it's fascinating when you talked about that vertical branch. and I was thinking when you first said that it didn't make any sense to me. I'm like,' down a vertical branch. I'm like, that's called a tree trunk. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh no, he's talking about like you mentioned, you talked about broken. I'm like, okay, so that's actually something I'm going to try next because I use I use the tree brackets, the strap-on brackets that hold uh- the limbs. And the next time I do one, and actually, I found good luck. This is another tip that people could piggyback with what you're talking about and what you found, Steve. If you create a mock scrape right in that late October, early November period, my trail cameras show that if I create a mock scrape and put a camera on it, if I do get a mature buck on that, it's almost always within the first 24 hours. They won't always come back, but it's exactly what you said, Steve. They'll see it, they'll recognize it as a new scrape. They're not familiar with it, so they wanna come over. I'm telling you, if you create a scrape like in the afternoon of one day, I would hunt that the next morning. I would hunt that the next evening. That could be your best time. And I'm gonna do what you just said, is I'm gonna add that to my setup Where when I get my branch, and by the way, I don't know, I like to use oak oak limbs for the same reason. Oaks hold their leaves for a long time, too, after they dry out, Steve. And so if there's a lot of oak in the area where I'm hunting, I'll usually look for an oak sapling and cut a couple of limbs off of an oak. But anyway, I'm going to break one of those limbs off like you see, you know, when the bucks have been thrashing around in there. And I'm going to break one of the, the small branches on that limb. So it hangs down straight and i see if I can't get, you know, more deer to notice that.
2: You, you honestly, I think you will. Like when you're in the woods, there's all kinds of over low overhanging branches. And I mean, deer, they're not going around checking every low hanging branch that they can see. But when they see that vertical branch hanging there, that's telling them, okay, there is a scrape going on here. And this is, especially for a mature buck that you know this claim dominance over an area like he's definitely going to want to check that out because he wants to make sure he doesn't have any other competition or you know or obviously he's also thinking you know who's making this maybe there's bucks in that area that aren't scraping as much because it's right in his core area so uh it plays a huge part just that that vertical limb uh it's a real uh I think more and more people are catching on to it, but it's definitely been a real game changer for me and in, in my mock scrapes and even scrapes in general, sometimes there isn't at a natural scrape, like there hasn't been that broken or vertical branch, but I'll add one to it. And almost always, it will increase. by the way. Too. How are you adding that? Like, how do you
0: hang the branch? So if you, if you cut off a branch, are you hanging the thin part down, the thick part down? Are you tying it with paracord? What are you
2: doing? Yeah, I've I've done it in all kinds of different ways. I mean, I would say that like that thin steel wire for a long, long term situation, I would say the steel wire holds up better than anything else. Um the thicker end usually at the top. Are you talking about What's steel that? fishing leader or what do you mean steel wire? Steel fishing leader would work good too, or they make just like uh you know, I don't really know what it's used for, but you like at your hardware store, you can get a spool of of steel wire that's just a little bit thicker than fishing line. But the only reason why I like that steel is I've had times where like a squirrel or a chipmunk or something, you know, chewed it. Even my uh, like I, this year, I've been been using a lot of zip ties. They're just they're really convenient. You throw five or six zip ties in your pocket, and, you know, they work pretty good. However, I have had some of them get chewed as well, but nothing has ever uh, went through the steel products that I've used, so that might be, be your best bet. But honestly, I've used string, paracord. Most of the time, you know, anything like that holds up for quite a while. But I like to hang the the thicker part of the branch up high, especially, I like the thinner part of the branch you want to maybe have some flexibility, um, especially like if deer are working it real heavy, if it flexes, it will actually last a little bit longer too and not pull as heavily, you know, on whatever you're tying it up with. Um, and usually the thinner part of the branch is what has the leaves anyways. So, uh, you know, that's that's also another reason why they hang lower. Another thing too I look for is when I cut a beech limb, and you know, a lot of times it has all kinds of little branches off it, yeah. I usually, you know, snip all those limbs except for, like, a bottom cluster, but I'll leave a little notch of a limb at that thicker end of it, and that's where I'll tie, because that that little notch of limb will hold that, you know, whatever you're using, zip tie or whatever, holds up better that way, too, so something to keep in mind. Yeah, I have a series of uh, pictures of about a 300-pound black
0: bear coming in and sitting down underneath my licking branch and just pulling on it, and I thought for sure that that was going to be gone, but it had enough flexibility that he didn't he didn't
2: he didn't take it down. I was surprised I thought exactly. I was really I was surprised he didn't bring it down, yeah, and well, even what? the overall above the overhanging branch, not the vertical branch that I use, but whatever the vertical branch is tied to overhanging, I always check to make sure that has a lot of flexibility because yeah. whether it's exactly. a bear or deer like the more give that has, the longer it's going to hold up as well.
0: And that's exactly what saved that one. It's the branch above it was just bouncing back
2: up and down as he was yep. pulling it. So. Exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge, uh, especially if it's a, if it's a spot you're not going to be able to get to very often. And you're really needing that scrape to hold up. That, that flexibility is going to really last in the long run.
1: Yeah. Well, Well, listen, guys, there's two more things I want to get to relatively quickly, because we were probably coming up on the better part of an hour. But I've got to give you some time, Steve, to talk about all these other factors that we didn't discuss, because we basically spent the entire episode talking about temperature, obviously mm-hmm. as the number one factor. And then we had a really interesting conversation about scrapes and things related to that. But so don't Don't go too deep on all this stuff, but talk to me about stuff like moon phase, moon position, precipitation, um, wind direction, barometric pressure, all these other things that there are people out there, uh, including some really successful deer hunters around the country, who talk about this kind of stuff all the time and put huge stock in it, and you're like, well, I don't know what to tell you, but I got six years and millions of cameras uh, or yeah. millions of photos and I'm not seeing it.
0: Yeah, I no. I still got my yeah. I still have my rapid fire questions you promised me, Christian.
1: <laughs> All right, we'll get to that. We'll rapid fire at the end, but he's gotta to touch on this because yeah. you know that you know there's gonna be guys listening to this who are like no, it's a red moon. I hunt by the red moon. That's the only thing, you know, and, and whatever it is, there's another guy who thinks it's the first day after a low pressure system. When the rain clears out, he's got to be there. Or there's another guy who's like, hey, I know my buddy Clint Casper, who writes for us all the time. He's big on studying what wind direction a buck likes to move on. And he hunts the bucks on that. So I just want to give Steve a chance to kind of like say why he hasn't keyed in on any of these other factors.
2: Yeah, um, no, I'm glad you brought that up. So I'll start with least of a factor and then work my way to what I've also noticed to be greater factors in movement. And this might be a surprising one, but probably the moon has been the least of a factor for these spikes in movement. Um, I have seen, and even last year, if I remember right, full moon was October 8th and I think November 8th. There was a little spike in movement right after those full moons, even last year. But overall, I have not seen the, the results and the same, notice the same, the same uh, you know, information that other people are giving you, on whether it's moon position or phase, whatever. I, I'm not seeing hardly anything exciting when it comes to moon phase. Um, also, uh, probably, you know, another one that's talked about, you brought that up would be wind shifts. Um, I think it also depends on which way the wind shifts more than just any wind shift. Um, But here's another factor too, like I did see uh, great spikes in movement over the years on north wind shifts, but then usually that's a cold front. So do you blame that on the wind shift or do you blame that because the, the colder air approaching? I will say also that if you have a really good front rolling in, a lot of times that movement spikes even before the cold air gets here. Uh, You know, you got a cold front coming on Friday. Don't be surprised if you see some big spikes of movement Wednesday or Thursday. So, you know, that's where something else is beating the temperature and it could be that wind shift. But the problem is, like I said, a lot of our cold fronts we're getting either north or northwest winds. So, um, but like an east wind shift, I've seen major decreases in movement. Where some people say east wind is phenomenal uh, because you hardly get them, but not for me. East wind, uh, I think it might even bother mature bucks.
1: When here, oh, this is my proverb: when the wind is from the east the hunting is the least.
2: <laughs> yeah, they say that for fishing too. And I kind of agree to that. Um, I think if it's uh if it's an unknown wind, you know, it has more of a negative effect on movement because whenever deer feel insecure, generally they will move less. They will spend more time laying down in their bedding areas where they're more secure than anything else. So those odd winds like an east wind, I've seen less movement. Um, but north and west winds have always been the best uh, for spikes in movement. Also, barometric pressure, I can't say that I've ever noticed, like, it has to be at a certain number. But once again, when it fluctuates quite a bit, that's when you'll see spikes in movement. Um, now, ultimately, though, another thing, and you touched on it a little bit, um, probably second to temperature would be precipitation. Um, like you brought up right after a rain, that's probably number two outside of a temperature spike or temperature drop. Um, like the longer it rains, like if you get like uh, a rain where it's, you know, close to a 24 hour period, it doesn't let up. And then pow, you know, it lets up. There's always a spike in movement. Some some really good spikes, especially. So right after a rain uh, is really, really good. And also, um, those first couple snows we get every year in the rut, a lot of times we'll get a snow like first, second week of of November. There's always spikes in movement. Those first couple snows. Um, I, I, I can't say I know the exact reason, but you know, keeping track of that information, you you throw the weather down and you look, Oh wow. It was even cold on Monday, but then it snowed on Tuesday. And look how it even spiked even more. Like that's what I'm seeing. So, um, those first few snows every, every rut or every fall, they're always really good. But uh, like I said, other than that, though, nothing has been able to come close to, to cold temps uh, in my studies. But, you know, this is only from October 1st to December 10th. So I can't say that some of those other factors and can't outweigh awesome. at different times of year, too. And it's buck movement, not just any deer movement. Yeah, correct. It's buck movement, and wow. and I do think does are less affected by everything because does tend to stick to a smaller area, but they move a lot within that area. Yeah, like a, a mature buck, he is uh he's more uh, he's selective on his movements. He's more selective about where he's going to move. So it takes something out of the ordinary to really get him out of his comfort zone and, and want to range and. Once again, that's, in my studies, it's been combined with time of year and temperature seems to really be the, the greatest factor. And, and honestly, what? going into this, I yeah. I never thought that, once again, that temperature was going to be it. But when you do a study like this, you just sit back and let the data speak for itself. And that's what I've done. All right. So do you have time for some
1: uh, rapid fire no, up. You're not up yet, Silks. I got one more. You're, you're at the good. end. Well, no, you're so at I, the end, John. I don't care. You're at the end.
2: That's Sit fine. Back.
1: I'm not done. Oh, no, fascinating, I, though. I was thinking about two things as Steve was talking, by the way. First of all, he talked about unknown winds. I've smelled a few unknown winds when you were in you know, hunting camp with John. <laughs> and And the other thing is he was talking about right after a rain. I killed my best buck ever out at Bob and Marshes right after a day like that. It was heavy, heavy rain, had moved in the previous afternoon, and it rained all night. And we knew from the radar that it was still going to be raining at sunrise. And we decided that we would sleep in that next morning, that we'd have breakfast at 9 o'clock, and we'd look at the weather and make a plan. And it looked like it was going to let up around 10 o'clock. So we got ready around 10 and went out and there was a massive flurry of activity that morning, like in the first 60 to 90 minutes after the rain stopped. And I killed like 163 inch buck that morning. It was awesome. Yeah.
2: yeah. That's number two. Like I said, I, right after rain is almost as exciting as, as, like I said, those prime temperatures. So I totally agree.
1: So so my last question and I promise you John the rest of the show is yours after this but, 30 seconds right I get 30 seconds <laughs> Now any anybody anybody who runs as many trail cameras as Steve does for as many years as Steve does we would really be remiss if we didn't ask him just some general trail camera tips like do you have like eight or 10 different brands of cameras out there? Or do you use all the same thing? And, you know, do you use a certain kind of battery? Do you use wireless cameras? I mean, it's a big question. Don't go too long. But like, what has experience shown you to be the best sort of all around choice for your needs when it comes to cameras and and just getting the, the best life on them?
2: Yeah, I I would say a higher quality camera, you're going to get longer out of it. But I will also say like, like you can spend $200 on a camera and it'll probably last you five or six years. You can spend $50 on a camera and it probably lasts you three years. So they kind of even out too. It's just, if you don't want to have to make an extra trip to the store every three years, um, I I think that, I think they kind of match up as far as, you know, how much money you're spending. Um, but for me, like in my best spots, I usually put a higher quality camera just because I don't want to miss out on that Intel. Um, then in a lot of areas that, you know, I feel may not be as good or it's a completely new spot, I'll put a cheaper camera. Um, so I have a all, all kind of a, a mix. Like I I have probably every brand, of, well, not every, but most of the brands of Thrill cameras I have I'm always watching out for a sale. you know occasionally a company will give me some too, but uh you know I, there's a whole plethora of, of variety and you know i if I could afford to run you know all two three hundred dollar cameras, I would, but on public land and the amount that I'm running, I mean my wife, I would definitely be divorced i it's tempting to do that, but i I wouldn't be married to this day if I was spending that much money, so you know, I'm definitely uh, looking out for the financial standpoint, and you know, and I'm still having good success even with a lot of these cheaper ones. Um, as far as batteries go, I pretty much quit using lithium batteries just because of the price of them. Uh, I mainly use uh, Railback, back uh, the alkaline. There's a, a store here where I live in Bradford, PA, that I can usually get like a hundred batteries for around thirty bucks, and in my experience, I I kind of think that you're getting almost just as much, even though lithium is going to last longer, but I, I mean, I just bought lithiums the other day. I bought 12 of them I and mean, it cost almost 50 bucks. So yeah, I might be, uh, I might be putting batteries in the camera a little more often by using alkaline, but still in the long run, I actually think the alkalines could be cheaper.
0: Uh, yeah, I just... I just priced a uh, hundred count uh, uh, yesterday, and I paid $34 for a hundred alkaline batteries, or I could have spent $259 on a hundred uh, lithium batteries. That's a
1: lot of money. I, I got yeah. you both beat. I got a hundred Amazon basics. I've got them right here. These are good batteries too. Like, no, seriously, I've used the Rayovac. I would, these Amazon basics, Twenty-one dollars no. for a hundred. It was a promotional that's price. A great book. Twenty-one bucks for a hundred. It was because I signed up for a subscription, and they give you a. a it was an extra like ten percent or something off of my. No, forty. I think it was an extra forty yeah. percent off my first order or something. Because that's yeah. the
0: exact same thing I just bought, Christian, for thirty-four. I didn't sign up for the subscription.
1: <laughs> yeah, I got it for twenty-one. So there you go. Read <laughs> and, it and weep, baby. Okay, John. We got to wrap this up. It's almost 10 after one. You've got it, man. Rapid fire. Steve, you've got to keep your answers to 30 seconds or less. All right.
0: <laughs> All right. First question. Now that everybody and their brother has learned to look for four and five year old timber cuts, what's, you know, how's somebody supposed to stay in the game? You know, everybody, you know, that the the whole uh, public land thing has exploded out of this world and everybody is out there looking for these cuts, and now they're getting crowded. So what's the next best thing? Do you just put boots on the ground and find those scrapes, or is there something else that, that uh, you know, people should be looking for?
2: Um, yeah, and I think this is something we talked about the other day, so I'm glad you brought it back up. But, yeah, I've turned more into a boots-on-the-ground hunter and scouter just for that exact reason. Um, I'm hardly hunting clear cuts at all because – uh, your number one enemy, and I'm not, I don't know if enemy is the right word, but right. when you throw hunting pressure in there, everything changes. So you want to be able to avoid hunting pressure and you want to always be evolving and adapting to uh, what other hunters are doing around you. So definitely boots on the ground, you know, finding more remote hard to access areas uh, looking for a sign in those areas uh, and just to keep it short and sweet, you know, just like I said, just be different and constantly pay attention to what other hunters are doing. I would focus more on the boots and ground, boots on the ground stuff.
0: All right, so that brings me into right into another question. So we've all heard, you know, boots on the ground. That, you know, I've heard that. You know, you got to put the time in. You got to put the boots on the ground. That that goes a little bit in in contradiction to, you know, big bucks won't tolerate disturbance. So is it just locate with boots on the ground and then get light on, you know, your, you know, presence in the area? Uh, is that how you do that? Because obviously, you know, you don't want to bump the the bucks out. You just want to locate.
2: Yeah. Uh, and I will say that when I'm doing extensive boots on the ground, it's, it's usually post-season scouting. That's when I'm really dissecting areas very thoroughly. So unfortunately at this time, Heavy boots on the ground could be a factor. I mean, what if you do bump a buck one time? It's usually not like it's over with and he's long and gone. But you still got to play it more on the safe side. But the boots on the ground should be done heavily in the off season. Uh, well, great. I, I, I yeah.
1: got to add, I got to add one thing there too, John. And this, I'm going to give credit to Clint Casper, uh, who says this in in some of his articles. But I agree. If you're, if it's right in the period that we've been talking about today, right, third week of October through the first two weeks of November, and you're doing some boots on the ground, but you're doing it with a stand on your back, you know, because mm-hmm. you're planning to hunt either like right then or the next day or something like that. It's not the end of the world if you bump a buck because that's the time of the year that any number of bucks can be coming and going from that area. So if you find an area with a whole bunch of sign, even if you happen to bump a deer, the odds that there are, that that's the only buck that's in that area at that time are slim. And you're going to get up and you're going to hunt. So unless you, that's the, unless you're hunting a buck and you only want to kill that deer, if you're just looking for a good buck, then you can get away with a little bit more during those peak periods in terms of moving around and hunting than you probably could in September or January. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely
2: correct, yeah.
0: All right, next question, the disappearing buck. We've all dealt with it, we all deal with it. You know, I, I, I hear these guys getting all excited about trail cam pictures that they're getting right now. I know you're getting some great trail cam pictures but how often do we get to the season and everybody's like, I just don't know what happened to them. I mean, I've seen people's seasons just crumble because they couldn't figure out what happened to those bucks. What do you do to stay on those bucks? Like, how do you track them?
2: Um, well, that's, you know, especially when you're running as many trail cameras as me. I mean, I think that is an advantage. I'm not saying you got to run 150, but run as many as you can And I will also say that a lot of these people think these bucks disappear and they're long gone, you know, miles away. When I find the complete opposite. Like there's been times just because of change in food source or hunting pressure that a buck is just shifting ever so slightly and hunters fail to adjust in these situations. They've had that buck at that spot all summer, then he disappears and they expect him to eventually come back or the you know the hunter will completely pull out of that spot versus like you know trying to figure out the reason why that deer left but most of them like i said are not as far as what you think uh it's just a matter of their their habitat's changing their bodies are changing this time of year whole bunch is going on that you would have to expect some kind of a shift so you could put like a three or four cameras spread around there trying to locate them you
0: yeah, like like
2: you know, one thing is food sources are changing, You know, it goes from green browse, and maybe it goes to acorns. Like, start finding the acorns in that area. Bucks are also going to be more around thick cover when they break up from bachelor groups. You know, have cameras around the thicker areas, or you know, learn the bedding in those areas. It's yeah. it's it's all based on biology. You know, there's there's a, you can expect this change every year. It, it happens every year.
0: Do you notice another question, real quick? Do you notice uh, um, if you start to see a uh, black bear family frequenting your your camera? Does that just blow the deer out, or do they live peacefully together, or what happens to the
2: bucks? Um, it depends on the area. Like if it's a bedding area, or uh, you know, a lot of times too. Like I see them when there's a good elk or acorn crop. Uh, if you if you have a ton of bears in that area, it does tend to push. The deer especially some daytime feeding because bears will feed all day they're not like deer you know they'll feed right at noon on a hot day but um it seems like areas where deer want to be more concentrated uh that will that will bother you know deer and kind of push them out some but if it's just like a travel corridor where both animals just kind of use you know but not so much uh to a patternable standpoint it's just kind of, you know, unpredictable. I mean, I'll have bear, deer, coyotes, bobcats all in one day on one camera, but it just depends on what what the, what is happening in that area.
0: All right, my final question. So I had a, and I'm going to put you on the spot here. This is the, this is the Steve Shark truth moment. So I was told by a very successful uh, public land hunter in Pennsylvania that there was a One or two keys to their success in public land that they won't tell people, and that you won't tell people.
2: Is there a secret out there that you're keeping from us, Steve? We need to know. Absolutely. There's secret deer, there's many, many secrets. And I will say, um, I'm sure you know, like I do scouting classes, I hold a couple of scouting camps. Like it's amazing because so many of these people follow me on social media and they listen to these podcasts and they're like, holy cow, Steve, like, this was all stuff or a lot of stuff that you've never talked about because I'm okay with telling a group of 10 versus thousands, you know, I'll give a little bit to someone that I can basically share a secret with, but there's definitely a lot of secrets. All right. So Christian, we have to be a part of that group of 10 here. next time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's a great way to end because what Steve's really saying is if you want I mean, this was, I actually thought this was a fascinating episode. I think there's a ton of great information, stuff that I'm going to use this fall, John. I'm going to key in on those 30-30 days for sure. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of really good stuff. But uh, if people do want a little bit more of Steve Shirk's secret sauce, you've got to connect with him a little more personally a little more intimately and so how can people do that you mentioned social media steve uh what are your social media handles do you have a website i know you you have a guide service so how can people who listen to this and they're like man i need some i need me some more steve Shirt? how do i get well, it
0: plus he has he has classes like
2: w- w- with people in person too
1: well, well let yeah. him tell us about it
2: Yep. Um, throughout the summer, uh, like I've been doing classes, uh, July, August, the last one's going to be the first Saturday of September. Uh, I also do quite a few of these in the field scouting classes, uh, in like the early spring, late winter period. I don't do them anywhere close to hunting season because I'm taking these people right in areas that, you know, that I'm hunting or plan to hunt. Um, but yeah, that's like I said, whether you want to attend a scouting camp or, uh, you want to do like a half-day class or interested in booking a hunt. Um, I only have social media anymore. Uh, I actually had to tame down the amount of people contacting me. Um, I was getting so many calls, especially from my website, and not always even just wanting to book a hunt, but like, hey Steve, my name's John Smith, and I just wanted to ask you some questions about deer hunting, like calling me like nonstop And I don't want to say I'm not like offended or it's just like I had to cut down on just the amount of work that I was doing, just interacting with people. So I knew that, you know, my best following and maybe the most supportive people were on social media. So I just have Facebook and Instagram right now, but you can just find me at either one, a shirk's guide service, S-H-E-R-K apostrophe S -S 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 guide service. And, uh, that's uh like I said, just that's the best way to contact me. I don't really like to have my phone number totally available or you know, shoot me a message on there and uh, be glad to talk to anyone.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, John. Well, I don't think that Bowhunter Hunter TV has ever done a public uh, land Pennsylvania hunt. But maybe we maybe we
0: about it.
1: <laughs> you talk to Waring about it?
0: Yeah, you're 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 out, buddy. I'm already in. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, you next know, year. I got I got room for Bull Hunter TV this year, so if they want to come. Let me know.
1: Wow, we may have to do that, John. We may have to do that this year. I know that I'm not doing a lot of travel this year, and we both have our Pennsylvania tags, and I don't have anything too exciting on my trail cameras locally here, so I'm kind of up for making the road trip up to Shirk's. Paradise.
2: Yeah, no, we we'd love to have you. It uh like I said, we've got we got everything you need here. All you need to bring is your hunting gear and uh obviously you know we got big deer and what you're looking for. So if they if you guys want right. to bring the show I, up, uh, we'd
0: love it. And you'll I can only anybody more positive than Mr. Berg in camp. He believes it can happen a <laughs> minute.
1: Well um, I so. can o- and I can only come if John says I can, because really I'm like a coattail holder on guy. John's the one that, you know, uh, turned me on to you. So anyways, man, that was a great episode. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks, John, for reminding me that we had, I know the first time we had Steve on, we talked about coming back and diving more into that long-term study that he has going. And it really was good, good stuff. Perfect timing for, you know, just as we're getting ready to head into the season here.
2: Yeah, thanks, Steve. Uh, thanks a lot for having me, guys. And uh, if I don't hear from you in the near future, my you know, best of luck to you. But I'll keep a couple spots open just in case you guys need to get up here this fall.
0: Thanks for downloading the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bow Hunting Magazine on your local newsstand or connect with us
2: online at bowhuntingmag.com.